Ever wondered what it would be like studying Spanish at the University of Oxford? Sit in on my conversations with Spanish tutors to find out what's so fascinating about the literature they teach, why they love teaching it, and why they think you might love it too. Hi Geraldine, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Hi. Hi, how are you doing? My name is Geraldine Hasbury and I'm a professor of medieval Spanish literature. And so what's the name of the text that we're going to be speaking about today and who wrote it? So the text that I've chosen is by an author called Jorge Manrique, and the text is called Coplas por la muerte de su padre. Great. And so tell me a little bit about the form of the text. Is it prose or poetry, for example? It's a poem and it's 40 stanzas long um, and it's notionally about the death of the poet's father, Rodrigo Manrique, but he doesn't actually appear until over halfway through. So the vast part of it is actually a more general reflection on life and death and the relationship between those two things. And so why was it that you wanted to speak about this text in particular? Well, it's actually a poem that I studied as an undergraduate, and I came back to it many years later and discovered that I I never grow tired of it. I never grow tired of reading it, and I never grow tired of thinking about it. So I think it does what all great literature does, which is to keep asking you questions and getting you to find your own answers. Brilliant. So maybe let's speak a bit about the historical and literary context around the poem. So when and where was the poem written and published? So it was actually written between 1476 and 1479. And lots of people would put that at 1477. And actually the poet died in 1479. So it was written shortly before his own death. And there isn't actually a primary text. We don't know um, what the master text was because of the the loss of materials in a manuscript tradition. Um, But the, the first printed edition was probably from 1483 and it was probably published in Zaragoza. Mm, And what was happening in Spain at the time? It was a really interesting time, actually, because there was a very volatile political climate in the 15th century, and particularly during the reign of one king in particular, Enrique Cuarto, and he reigned from 1425 to 74. And the author, Manrique, came from an exemplary aristocratic background. He was old Castilian nobility. His father, who's the subject of the poem, Rodrigo Manrique, was a master of one of the military orders, the Order of Santiago. And actually, the author, Jorge Manrique, fought in civil wars against the king, against Enrique, in 1464. And then when Enrique died, Jorge allied himself in the War of Succession with the cause of the Catholic monarchs, Isabel I and Fernando of Aragon. And he allied himself with them against Juana of Castile, who was actually the daughter of Enrique Cuarto and his second wife, Juana of Portugal, although she was rumoured to be illegitimate. And Jorge actually was a captain of the Holy Brotherhood of Toledo in the later stages of his life and was involved in action at the frontier, um, directly so. And actually his death came about as a result of of military action at the castle of Garci Munoz. He died from an injury to the groin. So he's a a figure who's heavily bound up in the the volatility um, and and the political clashes of, of his day, very immediately so. And did he write other poems or other texts 
Well, like many courtiers at the time, um, he was a warrior and and he was a, a writer, and in particular, he was he was a poet. So, so the life of a courtier and the life of a poet really do go hand in hand in the fifteenth century. Um, lots of poetry from this period was in the mode of courtly love songs and cancionero poetry. And Manrique did write love songs, and he he also wrote burlesque poetry as well. But actually, the the coplas por la muerte have have come to be the masterpiece for which he's widely recognised. And you just touched on then about the other literature that was being written at the time. Do you want to expand on that just a little in terms of what might have characterised literature being written around the same time as this poem? Yes, well, 15th century literature in Iberia is is very diverse. I mean, it includes chronicles, um, balladry, sentimental romances so in a sense it's hard to generalize but I would say that a lot of it is closely connected to the social and political context Um, so it does have quite an important relationship with the historical environment from which it comes. And are there any other texts that we should be aware of that came before this poem that might have influenced the writing of it? Well, there isn't a direct um, precursor from which Manrique draws um, his his material. Really, with the coplas, he draws more on classical archetypes and examples like eulogy and elegy. But there's probably a close connection with uh, an important text known as the Dance of Death, the Danza de la Muerte. Um, It's not known that this was a direct connection. It might just be a case that this text also is part of common conventions about death in the 15th century. But really, in general terms, I suppose the Coplas belongs to the 15th century um, trend for producing poetry at, at court. Great. So I think now let's speak a bit about the text itself um, in some more detail. So who is the speaker of the poem and who are they addressing? Well, the speaker's identity raises interesting questions about the crossover between the historical figure who was Jorge Manrique and the implied author and the narrator of the poem. They're not the same, but the membrane between them can at times be very fine, especially towards the end of the poem when Manrique speaks about his own father. Interestingly, he talks about his father dying and being cercado de sus hijos, surrounded by his sons, um, which is as if he were commentating almost from the outside. But the speaking voice also involves um, the first person plural a lot, the, the we form. So it's, it's very inclusive. It, it addresses the reader, but it addresses the reader as part of a wider collective. So could you give us some examples of when these different voices are heard in the poem? Well, there's one clear example I could think of, which is um, a difference perhaps between a rhetorical voice which is um, an example of which would be in the fourth stanza of the poem where he says, Dejo las invocaciones. He almost kind of stands on a a pedestal and and directs the the poem in in the sense of a a kind of orator. Um, But actually at the end of the poem, that voice seems to be taken over by actually direct dialogue between the figure of death and Rodrigo. So actually there are parts of the poem where the speaking voice, the narrator's voice is actually taken over by a representation of a dialogue between um, death and Rodrigo Manrique, and then Rodrigo Manrique also addressing Jesus. And then the very final stanzas come back to the speaker's voice, describing how Rodrigo has a good death. But actually within those gradations of historical author, implied author and narrator, sometimes there are sliding perspectives that are quite difficult to judge. And actually, 
the historical author, the person who, you know, for the historical record wrote the poem is not the same as the implied author, the person who is almost directing the substance and of the work and how we understand it. Um, the implied author and the narrator are often quite difficult to, to, to disentangle and um, especially in, in this poem where the speaking voice is, is so rhetorical at times. But probably the biggest difference then is actually between the appearance of that voice and actually its disappearance and the fact that the poem allows death to have a voice and allows Rodrigo to speak directly in dialogue within that encounter. And what are some of the main themes of the poem? Well, the obvious theme is death, um, but readers who are expecting, having looked at the title, to find a kind of outpouring of grief about a dead father will be quite surprised to discover that the approach to death is much more universal, it's more contemplative, and actually a lot of the poem is about what remains as much as about what disappears. I suppose when you're talking about process like he is, you're talking about life as a pathway or, or as a river, you're also thinking about time. And one of the things that occurs to me in the Coplas is how time is relative for Manrique. Um, everything seems to be precarious and imminent. It's as if what's already being said and spoken is reaching a point of decline. Um, there's something about the way he presents human life that goes beyond the idea of the pathway or the process and almost invites us to think about human experience as being quite conjoined, as if the boundary between life and death isn't very clear. And is there any variation in the way that the author approaches these themes throughout the poem? Um, yes, very obviously so, in the sense that the Coplas move from a general reflection about death to a more particular concrete example of that, which is his father actually dying. And within that structure, the Coplas are tripartite. So the, the first part of them is a general section reflecting on mortality. And then the middle part is a series of negative exemplar examples of, of behavior, of actual practical um, behaviours that are deemed to be improper. And then it ends with um, a praise of Rodrigo and his exceptional life and achievements. So it moves through those phases from the general to the particular. And actually we draw closer and closer to death to the extent that actually death appears in person right at the end of the poem. So can we say anything about the verse structure? And maybe here you might want to say something about meter or rhyme, for example, as well. Yes, yeah, so there are, as I said, um, there are 40 stanzas um, and each stanza involves four tercets and um, a tercet is a term for a, a, a three line verse um, and actually within each tercet there are two octosyllabic verses, there are two lines that are eight syllables long and then there's a third line which is only four syllables long and it's a half line and we call that pie quebrado which means broken foot. So what happens is within each stanza in those 12 lines, every third line is a half line. And this really involves the poem in a kind of resonant quality. It almost feels like a kind of heartbeat or a kind of um, a, a way of sort of measuring the pace of the poem, which is quite slow. And it's very distinctive and visually on the page it stands out, but also when you read it, the same effect applies. The octosyllabic verse is one that's fairly common in medieval literature. Um, the eight syllable line is found, for example, in ballads and, and also in epic poetry. But actually combining that with those four syllable lines is something that shows a high degree of poetic skill.
I find that really interesting the way you describe the meter as a sort of heartbeat because of what you said about the themes of the poem revolving around death, for example. Is there any relationship between the the meter or the sort of structure of the poem and the themes that are addressed within it? I think there is, and I think that's where some of Manrique's skill really comes to the fore, in the sense that the structure is very ordered and it's very predictable. And in that sense, what it's doing is, is putting a kind of order on death, which is something that seems potentially problematic for a modern reader in particular, because we might associate that moment with more darkness, more chaos. Um, but there's a kind of dignity about the coplas in general. Um, the measured pace of the poem means that certain key concepts and ideas have room to breathe almost. It's as if the lines are given just a little bit of a drawing back from the full octosyllabic line in order that the meaning of certain words is really evident and the sound of those words carries that. It's almost as if he gives certain key concepts and ideas a bit of breathing space and allows them to develop a little bit more slowly. And so when he's developing these ideas and, and key concepts, what sort of language is he using? Well, he uses language that is unencumbered and it lacks ornament for the sake of it. This isn't someone who clutters his poetry with devices and um, techniques just for the sake of it. Um, he chooses his words very carefully and at first glance maybe some of these words can be quite off-putting. They can seem consciously erudite, belonging to older traditions, often quite classical traditions. But really the meaning of them is, is very clear in their context and actually what he does is make them available, make them clear, rather than dressing them up in a kind of context where they might be deliberately obscure or complicated. He's not a wordsmith who tries to make things tricky. He's someone who allows language to speak for itself. And do you feel like there's a particular message that the author wants us to take away from this poem? Well, I think there is in the sense that there might be an uncontroversial message in one sense, in that Manrique is taking a lot of traditional commonplaces and ideas that already existed about life and death, and he's giving them his own poetic version. Um, for example, the idea about making the most of your life, the idea of leaving a legacy, of rejecting material things for higher aims like bravery and virtue. These ideas exist in many other contexts and many other literary forms um, preceding Manrique. But what he seems to do, I think, and maybe what a modern audience might see slightly differently is the absolute faith that he has in the next life and in the difference between the three lives. So Manrique sets out a, a schema by which there's a physical life on earth. There's a life of fame, a life of legacy, by which you leave something of yourself behind. And then there's a third life, an eternal life, which is guaranteed for eternity. And he talks about that as a morada sin pesar, a kind of dwelling place without sorrow. And he has utter faith in that. That's where his father ends up in the poem. And it's often the case that texts of a, a Christian of a religious persuasion like this, um, voice concepts like that, but there are texts from this time that are slightly more skeptical about that idea too, such as Fernando de Rojas's La Celestina, which is a text that, that lacks that feeling of consolation. So in that sense, his message is very hopeful, I think. Um, but I think there are other things in the Coplas that, that are perhaps not so conventional in the sense that um, he's, He's offering a vision of the court and he's offering a vision of the chivalric life, which 
in some respects, you could see him as criticizing. Um, he involves things like tournaments and jousts and the trappings of the medieval knight as part of an example of the vanities of the world, the things that pass away. But yet I think there's part of Manrique that still clings to that world, that still is almost at a point of enjoying that, of feeling a kind of melancholy for something that might already in his own time be fading. So the way I see the text is in terms of um, its time, maybe kind of standing on a precipice of, of, of a chivalric ideal that might already be crumbling. And he's, he's almost poised between enjoying that and celebrating that and seeing that as something that might be also construed as, as part of a world that needs to be rejected. So do you see the poem belonging to the end of a specific Castilian worldview? Well, Manrique sided with the Catholic monarchs and they went on to unify Spain and they expelled the Muslims from Spain and founded the Spanish Empire. And of course, Manrique had been involved in events connected with these outcomes. He fought in the frontier wars against the Sultanate of Granada, but he died before any of those major outcomes happened. And actually his father is described in the Coplas as winning eternal life through the spilling of blood in Trabajos e Aflicciones contra Moros. Um, to, to a modern reader, the idea of killing Muslims would seem to be a very uncomfortable sort of triumph. But it's important to remember that Rodrigo was engaged in the work of a 15th century Castilian knight, recovering land from the Muslims and fighting at the frontier. There's no escaping that difficult point. But I think maybe it's important to temper that with the fact that the poem also has a melancholy note here as well. I think this is less a kind of rallying call to arms and maybe more of a wistful reflection on proven military triumph and family achievement at a time when these old orders were starting to break down, where there were rifts between aristocracy and crown and near constant civil strife in 15th century Castile. So I think it's important just to look at it in its own historical context. And so I'm thinking about you approaching this text for the first time as a student. Do you think there are some challenges maybe for students when they first approach this text? And maybe you could give some advice as to how those can be overcome. Well, I think the problem that usually occurs is one that um, is common to, to students of, of older literature, which is a feeling of underconfidence about looking at older material um, and, and an older version of Castilian. And, and I would say to them that you don't need expert knowledge to be able to do that. You need to look at a good critical edition of the poem and, and use the footnotes. And, and obviously we, we help with that with our lectures and classes in Oxford. Um, so the first thing I would say would be to not be daunted and not be afraid of looking at older material. Um, the second thing I would say is that often when people look at the Middle Ages they have certain expectations about it and maybe expectations that come from more popular contexts about you know what, what it was like and you know what the historical record might have told us. Um, my advice with this as with any canonical work is to look at it with fresh eyes, um, to let it speak for itself, to let the imagery in particular speak for itself. Um, the other thing I suppose is that in a text like this about death, um, it's important to realize that death and decay and bodies were lived realities in this period. They're not poetic abstractions. This was a time in which people were very accustomed to the um, immediacy of death 
Um, and I would say with the corpulence that it's important to look out for that close contact with reality, even in what is a very erudite and lofty poetic setting. There's something in it that's really visceral, that's really in contact with, with human reality and human life. And that's what makes it so brilliant. I think it's it's not detached from the things that it's talking about. It's absolutely immersed in them. A big part of studying Spanish at Oxford is looking at literary texts in a lot of detail. So I'm asking Geraldine to pick out a quotation from the poem so we can analyse it a bit more closely. What's the quotation we're going to be speaking about and do you have a rough translation of it for us? Yes, so the quotation is Nuestras vidas son los ríos que van a dar en la mar que es el morir which means our lives are the rivers that empty into the sea of our dying. Okay, and so is this one line in the poem or is this a quotation that spans over several lines? So the quotation stretches over a tercet, over three lines, and it includes two octosyllabic lines and one half line, one line of the pie quebrado of, of four syllables, which is the line que es el morir. And whereabouts does this quotation come in the poem? So this is the third of 40 stanzas, so it comes right at the beginning of the poem and within that first section of the poem that stresses cognition, um, the opening section invites humans to awaken, to remember, to see, to think, to judge, lots of verbs like recordar, despertar, juzgar, pensar, and it's really getting us to think about the reality of life passing and death making its stealthy approach. So it has a very reflective tendency in general, this first section. And why did you want to hone in on this particular quotation from the poem? Well, it caught my attention because this is an image which is almost so readily understandable and commonplace that it could actually just pass you by. But it's vitally important to think about that and to think about why that is. So it's biblical in origin, but the very idea that our lives might be rivers that empty into the sea gets us to think a lot about what he's trying to say in terms of the life as a river and death as a sea. Are they the same thing? Are they different? Is he talking about a kind of annihilation or a different version of a kind of life? So there's lots to think about there. And actually, when you read it, it just it, it, it almost washes over you as a beautiful image. And it's so familiar. Um, but actually, there's, there's lots of depth to it. And you mentioned the number of syllables in each of these lines. Is there anything that you want to pull out about that um, that helps us to form a deeper understanding of the quotation? Well, I think what happens is that um, because um, the sounds at the ends of the lines are very strong, so you've got rios, mar and morir, what happens in the next tercet of, of that stanza is that they're rhymed with, with, with other words that, that are similar. So, señor Rios, acabar, and consumir. So the stanza in general, of which this tercet is part, reflects exactly what it's describing, um, which is a kind of gradual change. And actually the line, um, que es el morir, um, is given a half line to itself, this pie quebrado. And what that means is that dying essentially has a line to itself. It becomes the focus, it becomes more easily remembered. And we have to think in this, in this context about um, the possibility of people reading a text privately, but also reading aloud. Orality and textuality are closely intertwined still at this point in time. So sound effects remain incredibly important. And that feeds into my next question, which is about the very beginning of the quotation. So the quotation starts with 
our lives. And because it starts like this, it groups the reader in with the speaker of the poem. What effect does that have, grouping us all together like that? Well, the effect is clearly inclusive in the sense that he's speaking for all of us when he says that our lives flow like this. Nobody can escape this process. So in one sense, it's about death as a leveller. Um, in the rest of the stanza, for example, he goes on to talk about how great rivers and smaller streams all arrive at the sea. They all arrive as equals. And he's talking about that in order to level people who might be lords with people who might be poor and have no money. Death is the outcome for all of us. But I think that the we form is also a way of gently inviting us to take responsibility without pointing a kind of finger. He doesn't want to involve himself in a kind of didacticism that might be actually off-putting. There's a level of gentleness, almost a level of euphemism about that approach. And are there any other poetic devices from the quotation or even from the verse that this quotation comes from that are worth commenting on? I think only really that it's a metaphor and it's an extended metaphor in the sense that it continues throughout the stanza and the water imagery develops throughout. And I suppose what that does is invite us to think about why you would be using metaphors to talk about life and death. It's a way of talking about something without talking about it directly. And it's very image based. And it's partly, again, to do with that need to teach but also to entertain and inspire you know good literature try to to square those two things to enseñar and deleitar to teach and to entertain or to delight um, but I also think that in terms of the metaphor this is also a context in which people use their memories a lot and their memories are very visual and producing an image of, of, of a camino um, or a vida like a rio as he does in the first part of the poem is also a way of registering key concepts in a way that's more likely to have a lasting impact on one's mind and memory. And so would it be fair to say that this quotation helps us to maybe think about the way death, for example, is talked about in the poem as a whole, but at the same time is not broad enough to cover all of the other sort of themes and tangents that the poem might explore? I think so. And I think because the first section is, is so easily identifiable as more reflective and, and more thoughtful. And the middle section of the poem deals with a lot of very specific historical examples, including figures from his own and recent time, um, who he sets up as, as examples of, of, of the Ubi Sunt. He asks the question, where have they gone? Which was a rhetorical question, which is almost inviting us to remember these characters at the same time as inviting us to forget them. And what he's doing as the poem goes on is gathering a kind of specificity about death and leading to his father Rodrigo as being a supreme example of someone whose life is so good and so impressive that he can never be forgotten so there is a kind of crescendo as it becomes more and more particular in terms of how we lead up to his own father and, and what his own father's death means so in the in the beginning we are thinking about death as a general concept and we have those things in mind as we read the more particular examples as the poem goes on. So that when we come to his father, we have a huge amount of information and reflection about death with which to weigh up how his father died, which is in exemplary fashion because he was an exemplary individual. Thinking about applying for modern languages at uni? Well, keep up to date with the latest episodes of the podcast and find out about our upcoming outreach events by following us on Twitter at OxMML underscore schools. You might also like to take a look at our Modern Languages blog. 
Adventures on the Bookshelf. This podcast was created by Professor Ben Bollig, produced by me, Christy Calloway-Gale, and brought to you by the Subfaculty of Spanish at the University of Oxford. Special thanks goes to the tutors that participated and the Taylor Institution Library.